we are thankful for that uh, reminder, that encouragement to walk on by faith each day, especially in these days. We have to uh, walk by faith. Keep doing that. Uh, that's the life of the believer. Uh, we walk by faith. We trust God. We trust our Lord as we live in any day, any time of trial, any time of uh, difficulty, even in the days that are relatively calm, we walk by faith. And so we thank God for that, uh, that message uh, that came through that song. Uh, it encourages our hearts as we uh, continue to look forward to the days to come. None of us know what will happen. I I'm reminded of the reality that people thought when 2021 came, everything's going to be all right. I thought something's wrong with that thinking. Uh, the change of the calendar does not change the fundamental nature of life. And for the Christian, we understand that. Therefore, we continue to trust God as we walk by faith. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is where we're going to draw the message for uh, this morning from. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm taking as a subject for this verse, he finishes what he starts. You know, uh, you've heard, you've seen perhaps on television, NASA sent a $2.7 billion robotic explorer, the size of a car, named Perseverance to Mars. The seven-month, 300-million-mile trek concluded when Perseverance landed softly on the red planet's surface, near where the scientists and engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory planned. What NASA started, it finished. Likewise, what God started with respect to our salvation, he will finish. There was some concern, however, you need to know this, uh, with the people at NASA about uh, some problem that the uh, rover would encounter as it made its trek, even as it came down into the Martian atmosphere. And that would, of course, possibly made the mission unsuccessful. However, do understand this, nothing can or will thwart God's saving mission from being fulfilled as he planned with respect to our soul's salvation. He will get us to heaven. That is as sure as NASA got the perseverance to Mars. In fact, our, our arrival in heaven is more certain than what NASA did. It is as certain as God himself lives eternally. And really, that's what Paul announces to the Philippians, and by extension, that's what he announces to us, that we will certainly get to heaven. There is no doubt about that for the elect of God. So he announces to the believers there the commencement of his work, the commencement of God's work. And that's why he says, for I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, that's the beginning of the work. And this work, notice, is from God. It is wholly a work of God from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and Omega, if you will, in salvation. The divine record. If you want to know, how, how, how do we know uh, that God's going to get it done? Well, there are a number of reasons how we know he's going to get it done. Number one, he's omnipotent. He has all power. Therefore, he can accomplish whatever is consistent with his will and nature. He will get done. We know that. Number two, God is a God of truth. He cannot lie. Further, 
God has given us a record of what he does in finishing what he starts. All you have to do, think about it for a moment, look at the biblical record, and you can see how God starts something and he completes it. Can I give you just a few? First one, the triune God did not cease work until the work of creation was completed. Think about it. The evening and the morning was the first day. The evening and the morning was the second day. The evening and the morning was the third day. God didn't say, okay, I'm done. He didn't stop. He continued until the sixth day was completed after the creation of animals and men. Or man, God then rested on the seventh day. He, another, from the biblical record, he promised to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage and to bring them into the promised land. He didn't stop until it was accomplished. Another, God promised to send Messiah to redeem sinners. He promised that back in Genesis 3.15, in fact. The divine Messiah came, he went to the cross, and uh, John 19.30 records Jesus' words when he says, It is finished. The work of redemption was completed. Jesus had done everything necessary to secure our redemption. The work was finished. What that tells us about God is this. He finishes what he starts. There are no half measures with him. Our text here, Paul, he says he's confident. He's confident. His confidence is grounded in the fact that God said he would finish it that he would finish the good work that he has begun. Now, we need to define good work. Exactly what is that a reference to? Uh, there have been differences of opinion among, about that, but I believe clearly it's a reference to our eternal salvation, the good work that God has begun in us, as he did in the, Philipp to the Philippians. In fact, you'll notice in our text, there are two words, began and perfect. Those two words in verse 6 are used by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, in reference to the entire Christian life. The good work, therefore, should be regarded as God's transforming grace in salvation. God has begun a good work. Salvation is not a matter of our working for God. Get this point. It's not a matter of our working for God, but God working for us and in us. God is doing the work. The Philippians, to whom Paul originally wrote, were genuinely converted to Christ. Those Philippians had experienced the new birth. The new birth is that divine act by God whereby he gives new life to dead sinners. And by that new life, they turn from their sin in repentance and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And in this text, in fact, the apostle is letting them and letting us know that they will persevere. How do we know that? Because God will perfect the work. It says it there. He'll complete the work. The spiritual fact of the matter is this. Now get this. We are predestined to perfection. Romans 8, verse 29 we are predestined to the completion of our salvation. God determined that in eternity past. So we're predestined to it. He marked us out for that very purpose. So we see the commencement of the work. For those of you uh, 
following the heading, you like to write them down, here's the next one. The continuation of his work. The beginning, now you need to understand this point, the beginning of our salvation was instantaneous. In an instant, we were born again. In an instant, we crossed from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. In an instant, we were united to Jesus Christ. In an instant, we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And in an instant, we were sanctified, positional sanctification, where we were set apart from sin to God. In an instant. In an instant, the Holy Spirit came to live within us. All these things and more happened instantaneously at the moment we were saved. Justification, in an instant, that happened. We were declared righteous. All happened in a, a moment. There is another aspect of salvation, however, which is not instantaneous, but it is continuous. God continues to work in us. Those whom he saved, those who received the new birth, those who were justified, they are being worked on or worked in by God continuously. In the commencement of our salvation, we were fully and forever delivered from the wrath of God due to our sin. Now, in the continuation of his work, God works to deliver us from the power of sin in our daily living. How does he do that? God has a number of means whereby he delivers us practically from the dominion of sin in our daily existence. One of the means he by which he does this, is through prayer. Through prayer. And you can see Paul states it in verse 9. He prayed on behalf of the Philippians. Intercessory prayer is a means whereby God, in answering such prayers, works in the life of his people to move them along the path of greater holiness. You notice in verse 9, Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Let's just stop there at the end of the clause here. This is a prayer for spiritual advancement between the initiation of their salvation and its consummation. Paul prays specifically that your love may abound still more and more. The reason he does that, and I think you probably get this, is that no one in this life reaches the saturation point of love. No one loves the way they should in ultimate terms. It's a work in progress. We have to love more and more. No matter how much you love, you, there's still room to grow. Agape is not achieved in this life. Full expression of agape in our life is not achieved fully by any of us in this life. But we grow more and more. And Paul is praying that their love will even abound more and more. Get that abound more and more in love. Love is essential. Agape is not this sentimental kind of love. It's not this weepy kind of, oh, emotional. So no, 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 no. It's not that love is decisive. It makes a choice. 
It's an act of the will. Yes, there could be an emotional element there, but it is not that. It's not controlled by that. It's a, a choice to express love, to love others. In fact, this, this love enables us to exhibit all the other spiritual virtues. It's the foundation upon which the superstructure, if you will, of spiritual virtues are built. Now, this love, um, you notice the text here in verse 9. It must abound still more and more in real knowledge. Real knowledge. That's crucial to understand. Where does real knowledge come from? It comes from the scripture. It comes from the Bible. You want to know what real love, uh, what love according to scripture is? Look at what the Bible says about it. We don't look to the world. because <laughs> they, they can't discern the difference between love and lust. And they think eros is love. <laughs> this kind of love, it ain't. It isn't, excuse me. <laughs> The reality is uh, this kind of love, you go to the Bible to find out uh, what it means. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It does not seek its own. When you look at what the Bible says about what love is, you see how different it is from the world's conception of love. Even how we have conceived of love, uh, even sometimes as Christians, we have the wrong idea. The love that is being prayed for here is the love that is, according to real knowledge, is directed by the word of God. All discernment, Paul says in verse 9. In all discernment. Love is discerning. That is, now get this, it has a high level of biblical, moral, and spiritual perception. Why? Because it recognizes principles from the Word of God. It's how we perceive what real love. That's how we discern. We look at the principles that the Word of God enunciates, and then we understand, ah, this is real love. Example, real love will ask the question about how one lives and say, is it helpful? Or is it harmful? Will it um, cause someone to sin what I do? The biblical principle tells us real love won't do that. Paul, remember he said, as long as earth, I won't eat meat if it causes my brother to stumble. We look to the word of God to determine how we love. It's not based on our feelings. It's based on biblical principles. And we understand then how to love. It further, it implies the right application of that knowledge to our life. To put it another way, discerning love enables a believer to love what God commands. Love what God commands. That's discernment. Real spiritual knowledge directs believers' love into what is both biblically proper and pure. Get that. Biblically proper and pure. That's love. Boy, that's so important for us to understand uh, what love means because it's too often that we can be confused, as I've already alluded to, by misunderstandings and misperceptions of the nature and character of love. No, from the Bible's perspective. We, we learn how to love because God 
tells us how. I'm going to just pull out another thing or two here. We're not going to deal with all the verses pertaining to Paul's prayer here. I've done it on another occasion, but I just want to pull out a couple of more things here uh, for our consideration. Understand how God helps us grow as we, we love. And as we're growing in love, that's how then our life is growing in terms of holiness. You notice another thing uh, at the bottom of the verse, verse 10. Um, we want to be sincere and blameless. Sincere and blameless. Two words here. That let me just give you a little help with them. Sincere. That word. Um, in in the time when this was written, there was unscrupulous pottery dealers selling their wares. And the, uh, just like today, there are people who are not honest. Uh, that's just reality, human, fallen human beings. And what they would do, they'd take cracked pottery and say, well, we can't throw it away. Uh, we ain't even going to mark it down. <laughs> I got a cracked pottery sale. No, they're not going to do that. They're going to fool you. They're going to put wax on the broken or cracked part of the pottery, and they set it out there to sell, and the customer comes by. But a wary customer is knowing the practices, and no, oh, okay, brother, let me pick it up. They hold it up to the sun. Ah, the wax is darker than the pottery. They say, man, you put some wax on this pottery. I don't want that cracked pottery. This word sincere. Believers expose their lives to the sunlight of God's word. Like the customer purchasing pottery exposed the pottery to the sunlight. And as we expose ourselves to the sunlight of God's word, we see our flaws. We see our cracks, as it were. We see the things wrong in our life. And what the Christian's response is as he's maturing is not to try to cover them up with the wax of religiosity. What he does, he recognizes, I've got to repent. I've got to obey God in this area. I see where I've fallen short. That's how you are sincere. And to be blameless. Blameless without stumbling or offense, not falling into sinful conduct and not causing others to uh, go into or fall into iniquity. So the idea is, uh, as you're blameless, you don't want to offend God. You don't want to offend others. You want your conduct to be righteous. You want your conduct to be holy. That's what it means here to be blameless. I remember, I can't remember the words exactly, but there was a, a gospel hymn, and they had the lyrics, I didn't wa don't want any choir member to stumble over me. I don't want a, an usher to stumble over me. In other words, uh, the song was indicating that they want to live such a way that their life wouldn't be a stumbling block to another believer. And that's how we are to live our life. We should live so that our life will not cause another to fall into sin. That's how you live the sanctified life. That's the outworking of the sanctified life. That is a holy life. And we're to live like this until, notice, uh, until the day of Christ. 
the day of Christ. This is a time in the future about which I'll explore more fully later in this message. Suffice it to say at this point, however, that the day of Christ Jesus will include believers giving an account of their life they lived subsequent to their salvation will, in fact, appear at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. With the knowledge of this fact, we should be incentivized, therefore, to live sanctified lives. You know you're going to give an account. That ought to be a strong motivation to live a holy life, knowing that there is an account, accounting coming down the road. Now, this accounting, you need to understand, is not for the punishment of our sins, because that was eternally addressed at the cross. So we never have to worry about encountering that. We're fully covered. Christ's death took care of that. Our accounting will be for reward. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. So we know that's the reality, the day of Christ Jesus coming. But there is another means in addition to prayer uh, that God uses to further us along uh, the path of uh, sanctification. And this is one that we've looked at before as well. But the, it's another means, as I just indicated, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And Paul writes about them being obedient in verse 12. They've always obeyed, verse 12 it says, put a pin in this, do understand that obedience to Jesus Christ, obedience to the word of God is a hallmark of salvation. It's indicative of one who has really been born again. A person who claims that they uh, know the Lord, but there's no be obedience to him in their life, First uh, John clearly tells us that uh, salvation is bogus. Paul, now notice, uh, he tells him, obey in verse 12, not as in my presence only. You remember, he wrote this from uh, prison when he was there to obey, but not now. But even now, while I'm in prison, he is saying, how much more in my absence? Get this point. Obedience, like our love, is to grow. We haven't reached the zenith of obedience in this life. We're still progressing, step by step. Now Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out with fear and trembling. We know that this is not a call to work for salvation. Such a notion is um, to Jesus and to the New Testament writers is a f would be considered it is considered a heresy. It's false teaching. They would abominate it. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That is abundantly clear. The scripture is utterly clear about that. Don't let that be mistaken. The work here is to work on to finish. That word, work. In the original, is in the presence, present tense is an imperative, that is a command. It's a second person plural verb, that is every Christian is to be engaged in working out their salvation. Now, another point about this work in our salvation, we work out that which has been graciously given to us, Philippians 
For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, granted to us to believe in him. And we make it operational in our life. We work out in our life what's been worked in us. You may ask the question, how? Glad you asked. By personal conduct. Faithful daily living. That's how. Let me specify the scripture. Romans 6 verse 19. We are present our bodily members as slaves to righteousness. Our eyes, our ears, our tongue, our body. We're to present them, these members of our body, as slaves to righteousness. We've been made alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can follow this command. And you have to look at righteousness as a master. Master righteousness commands, do this, do that, do the other thing. And we, as slaves to righteousness, we do those things. And as we do those things, then we are living as God wants. Another is Ephesians uh, 4, 1. Uh, that text tells us we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that's how we're to live our life. We're to live that way, a life worthy of the Lord. What that means is we're to um, meet his standard, live up to the standard of righteousness that he has set, a life that is worthy of him. That's how we work out our salvation. You notice another thing in our text in Philippians 2. It says this, we do it with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Let me for a moment talk about fear. This is reverential awe. Awe of God, reverencing God. And what does that involve? It involves self-distrust. Being on guard against temptation. We know our weakness. And in reverencing God, we guard against temptation that will come from various corners, sectors, places in our life. We don't want to offend or dishonor God. And we have this reverence for him. And when there's reverence for him, this is God, I don't want to dishonor you by disobedience to you. I don't want to dishonor you by yielding that temptation. God, I don't want to dishonor you, displease you by those things. That's how we fear him. That's what it means to fear God. If there is a, a holy desire in you, abstain from those things that dishonor him you know is it work in you and you're fearing him there's the other word here trembling 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 what are you talking about trembling our word tremor comes from the word that's rendered trembling here trembling it, this is the idea we tremble at this prospect of sinning you ever, ever do, tremble at the prospect of sinning? 
That's what the text is saying. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the B portion of it says this, God is speaking. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Trembles at his word. That's what God says. What does it mean to tremble at his word? It's to take his word seriously. That's what it means. If you or I take God's truth seriously, we will tremble at it. Because we don't want to disobey it. And that's the one to whom you look. It requires a humble and contrite spirit. Now the apostle Paul goes on to tell us, notice in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working that you have the will and that you'll then work for his good pleasure. It's God's at work. Our duty is to respond and obey. It is God who is doing the work in us to both will and to work, which is for his good pleasure. Notice, as we are living a sanctified life, that pleases God. Pleases God. So we've seen the commencement of his work, the continuation of his work, now the consummation of his work. We see this again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when the apostle says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The completion of our salvation is a matter of prophecy. This is a prophetic text. It's not one that people think about when they think about prophecy, but it most certainly is. It is a prophetic text. It's a prophecy of things to come. God is predicting this is what's going to happen. There's a day called the day of Christ Jesus that's going to come, and that's going to be the day that the church will be perfected. Now, the day of Christ Jesus is used two other times in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. We saw that a moment ago at chapter 2, verse 16. It's also used by Paul in a little different language about the same day uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Now, the day of Christ, you need to know this because you'll wonder if you read the Bible because you'll see uh, the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, get this, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are Different days, different events. They are to be distinguished. The day of Christ Jesus is not the day of the Lord. Let me explain what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament referred to historical judgments of God, and they happened. The day of the Lord meant judgment. It's also prophetic because the day of the Lord is coming when there will be judgment on this planet. It will come upon the wicked. But, this is good news, uh, no Christian will participate in the day of the Lord. It, that future judgment that's going to come upon the rebels on this planet, Christians will not participate in it. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, i tell you how I know that, because the Bible tells me so. That's how I know anything. <laughs> right? How else could we know it? The Apostle Paul makes it plain. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Notice something. He uses, um, notice the pronouns here. Verse 3, while they, not us, saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them not us, sudden like labor pains. Now, notice the change here. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Is that not clear? We will not be participants in the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Ours is the day of Christ. A different and distinct day. It's a day of blessing, not of cursing. A day of rejoicing, not a day of sadness. It's a good day, not a bad day. The day of Christ Jesus. It's a day for Christians. It's a day for the church. You're in First Thessalonians, I'm sure. The day of Christ Jesus... It's the day that the church will be resurrected and raptured. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us this. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the notice the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice in Christ, our union with Christ. When you die, you're in Christ. Remain that way. You're dead. Your body's in the ground. Your soul's in heaven with the Lord. But you will be resurrected if you die when this ev before this event occurs. The dead in Christ will rise first. This is a resurrection of Christians. They go first. They will be summoned by the Lord Jesus in his power. Come out of the grave. Just like he did Lazarus. Remember? He said, Lazarus, come forth. You're going to say, saints, come forth. Saints all over the world. Those in Christ, come out of the grave. Then, in verse 17, you'll notice, we who are alive and remain <laughs> will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are on earth at that time, the day of Christ will be snatched up, come up, caught up, snatched. Together with the dead in Christ. This great company of people who are in Christ, whether they're dead or alive, caught up together. This is the day of Christ. We'll meet the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. And we'll be with him forever. Now, let me tell you what this means. In addition to what I just said, the resurrection and rapture of the church. In Philippians 1, that word perfect 
is the Greek verb epiteleo. Epiteleo means to complete. It means to bring to a goal. God's goal for us in salvation will be at that time completed. The resurrection, rapture of the church. God's goal for us in salvation at that moment will be perfected. Now, I said resurrection. Um, Let me add some insight. Of course, I get this again from the scripture. Philippians chapter 3. This too is a prophetic text. It's telling us what's going to happen in the future with respect to ourselves as believers. Verse 20 of Philippians 3. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he comes to take us from the planet, whether we're dead or alive, look what it says. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That word transform, speaking of a body of humble state, we presently are in a humble state because of sin. There is weakness. There's disease, there's death. We know this. It's been really stark this year because of COVID-19. We understand the humble state of the human body. Cemeteries loudly proclaim this every time we go by one. No one's closing up cemeteries for the lack of deaths. They just run out of space. Every time you go to the doctor, every time you go to the dentist, it's a testimony to our humble state. Every time you take medication for whatever ails you, that's a testimony to your humble state of your body. Physical rehabilitation. Something happens and you have to go be rehabilitated. That's another testament to the humble state of our bodies. And that's the way life is. And we, uh, we're dying every day. You see it. Look in the mirror. Look at the pictures, the old ones. And you see there's been a change, but not the kind you like. The word transform here. that Jesus Christ will accomplish means to refashion. Now get this, to change the outward form, our appearance. When he takes us out of the grave if we're dead or if we're alive, when he comes, he is going to transform us outwardly. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Not only outwardly, 
you notice something, there's another term here, into conformity. The changing of the inward and outward substance conforming to or with something. This change will be comprehensive, externally, internally. What is that something? It's clear in the text, with the body of his glory, his resurrection body. His resurrection body, which you know, he could eat, remember? He ate with the disciples, but he could also suddenly appear and go through walls. We're going to have a body like that. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says this, we will bear the image of the heavenly, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and we'll be transformed into his image. It is at that point we will experience the redemption of the body that Romans 8.23 speaks about. See, let me tell you something. Our souls are redeemed. But you know we still live in these fallen bodies, right? God has made humanity to be a body-soul unity. We'll be a body-soul unity throughout all eternity. Our souls have been redeemed. But our redeemed souls need a redeemed body to live in. A redeemed body that's soul is, uh, body is suitable for heaven. Uh, this perishable must put on imp imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 through 54 tell us this. And then we will be with the Lord. Now how is this going to happen? Jesus Christ has the power to do it. Verse 21, by the exertion of the power that he has, even subject all things to himself. There is nothing beyond his power to transform. After all, he was the agent of the Father. He spoke the universe into existence. He can change your body, right? And he will do it. And it will be in conformity with his glorious body. We'll be just like him. That's our future. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In heaven, we'll all be conformed to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ, externally and internally. Salvation will be completed, and Jesus will have preeminence. That's what firstborn means. He will have the preeminence among many brethren. We're his brothers, but he'll be first. When this happens, brothers and sisters, at that time, God will have finished what he started. That's where we're headed. Glory to God. And praise be to his holy name. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for uh, eternal truth. Thank you that this is a work that you do. We thank you that you have a plan for us. Thank you that it's transcendent, it's 
beyond really anything we can at this moment fully comprehend. We thank you that you have summoned us to salvation and you're going to work this out in us, through us, and we will be in your presence, perfected people forevermore. Serve, love you for all eternity. May we understand these truths more fully. May they animate our life in service to you that you might be glorified thereby. We pray for any who listen to me who are unsaved, that they will understand the glorious future of the saints. You move their hearts to trust the Savior that they may join in with us for the glorious future that lies ahead of us. These things we pray for your own glory and praise. In Christ's holy name, amen. God willing, we'll